Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Welcome, everyone. It is Wednesday, December the 14th, 2022. It is currently 5.54 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas, where we are having internet issues today, which is extremely frustrating. We're having some kind of weird internet connection problem that I cannot really explain. I clearly don't understand, but something is not working right. I don't know. I don't know if the problem is in my home. I don't know if the problem is somewhere in the line. I don't know if the problem is with the internet provider. I don't know. I don't know where the problem is, but something isn't working correctly. And when things don't work correctly, you get frustrated. You get irritated. Dare I say, you get angry because you just need things to work properly, right? Well, I say that to illustrate the frustration, the anger that I'm having in this current series that we're working on. See, we're working on this series called Understanding Law and Gospel. I haven't been too frustrated for most of the series, but I find myself right now in a point of great frustration, of great irritation, of, dare I say, anger, because we are reviewing the audio from a podcast that supposedly was going to talk about law and grace, and all I can say, something isn't working. Okay, something's not working somewhere. Something is not working the way it's supposed to, because wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be amazing that within Christianity, there was one theology, one doctrine, one truth, that we were unified in one interpretation of the scripture, that we could agree that everyone agrees on the interpretation of scripture. There was one baptism, one Lord's Supper, one salvation. Wouldn't it be amazing if if there was one way to organize the church? Wouldn't it be great if there was agreement anywhere in the body of Christ? But there isn't agreement. And clearly, this podcast episode that we are reviewing has a, I don't even know where to begin with their understanding of law and grace, law and the gospel. We'll refer to it as law and the gospel because that's what we're calling this. This is a very important, dare I say, one of the most important aspects of theology uh, currently in 2022 going into 2023, because I believe the evangelical church, the American church at large, has obliterated literally destroyed a proper understanding of law and gospel and has completely obliterated the proper distinction between law and gospel. And when you obliterate that distinction, when you destroy that, what gets destroyed, what in a sense get writ- gets written out of existence inside the church, obviously it's not going to be written out of existence in the word of God. It's right here. But the gospel is being written out of existence. Now, people are still walking around calling it the gospel, but it's not the gospel. It's the law. It's the law masquerading as the gospel. All right, here's the good news. 
But their good news isn't really good news because their good news, it's almost a bait and switch. Hey, here's good news. Here's the gospel. Oh, it sounds so good. It sounds so wonderful. You see, you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone, apart from works. It's because of the imputed righteousness of Christ. And you're like, oh, that, that's what I need because I'm a sinner and the law condemns me and I can never keep the law. I need salvation. I need a righteousness outside of myself. This is good news. And you begin to rejoice. And as soon as you reach out to grab what they present as the good news, you grab onto that bait and they think they've got you on the hook. Boom. They switch it and say, no, but, 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 however, if you don't do A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, element O, P, Q, R, S, T, U, V, W, X, Y, N, Z, and a number of other things, then you're probably not saved. You're never saved. Because the real good news they offer you is this. Jesus came to give you the ability to keep the law. And in keeping the law, you prove you are saved. How is that for good news? And then you're like, well, wait a minute. It would be good news if I really could keep the law. But I keep falling short over and 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 over. And I keep sinning in thought, word, and deed, in what I do and what I don't do. I fall short internally. I fall short externally. I fall short... Just start with three basic commands. Love the Lord that God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. I never fulfill that. So I'm in constant sin. Love my neighbor as myself. I love myself above everything else. I don't love my neighbor as myself. And be ye holy as God is holy. I never pull that off. So I'm condemned. And they'll say, no, 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 no. I mean, you're not going to do it perfectly, but, but, but God gives you the ability. And it's this convoluted supposed gospel. And it's not the gospel. It's law light. It's the law. They just seem to remove the full demands of the law. This is the weird thing. They destroy the gospel and replace it with law light. And when I say law light, here's what I mean by that. The law in the scripture demands perfect, personal, exact, entire, and perpetual obedience. Right? That's what it demands. They come along and claim you have the ability to keep the law. You have the ability to obey. But then you have the, uh, uh, the you have the ability to obey. They claim you have the ability. They claim you have the, the power now to obey and to keep the law. They claim that. But then they'll turn right about back around and say, even though if they're saying you have the ability and that you can say yes to God and no to sin, and you can pull it off, even after telling you you can't. Then they'll say, well, however, you can't do it perfectly and you're still going to sin. Well, wait a minute. I thought you told me I had the, ob the ab ability and you told me that my obedience proves my salvation. And if my obedience proves my salvation, well, then, then that ability has to get me to perfection because the law demands perfection. Well, no, 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 no. It doesn't mean perfection. And it's just this weird convoluted mess. And if you've been listening to the last two episodes you know what exactly I'm talking about. If you haven't been listening to anything, then you may not know. But let's just tell you, it's been a mess. It's been an absolute mess. So here's what I would say quickly. All right, we're going to try to we're going to try to advance this review as far as we can. But listen to me carefully. First of all, the series that we're doing on understanding long gospel is by far the most important series I've ever done, and it's the most important series for the church in 2022 going into 2023. That is not hyperbole. That is not exaggeration. That is not hype. I truly, truly, truly believe that. So please go listen to now the 41, 42 plus hours 
of teaching that we have done on the subject so far, and we've probably got another 100 hours to go on the subject, and you think I'm joking, I am not. We've got a long ways to go. So please go back and listen. Now, starting, I don't know, two days ago, we started doing a review on a podcast episode from uh, the Gospel Coalition, which is just crazy that that's their name, and then they they basically have destroyed the gospel in this episode. But they 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 played on their podcast uh, something from a conference from the Gospel Coalition conference that happened in 2021. What had occurred is uh, they had brought someone in who had written an article, I think, going back to 2014, who they felt that Christianity was becoming too comfortable with our failure, too comfortable with our sin. And so they wanted to confront that and say, stop celebrating your failure because you don't have to fail. The good news is you can stop sinning. The good news is you don't have to fail because you've been giving the ability. I don't know why I keep saying ability, but the ability, I don't know why I'm saying that incorrectly. You have been given the ability now to keep the law. In fact, they go so far to say, this was crazy, that the law is a means of grace. What? They basically turned the law into the gospel. Hey, how do you find grace in the law? No, I find grace in the gospel. The law condemns. Now, the law may have a positive function and driving me to the cross it may have a pro- it may have a positive function in laying down what God does want in our life and what He wants us to pursue, but it's not a means of grace. It's a means of guilt and shame and condemnation. That doesn't make the law unrighteous by any means. It is righteous because it comes from God. But to say that it's a means of grace, I have never heard anything like that in my entire life. But that's what we heard last night. So we're going to back this up. So we are reviewing again this audio. Comes from a Gospel Coalition conference. I'm assuming it was their conference from uh, I don't, 2021. And this all started in an article written in 2014 by a, a, fem- a female author uh, who uh, was upset that Christians are too comfortable with their failure. And they need to stop being comfortable with their failure because they don't have to fail. They can obey. And after giving us that idea, then they pull, they said, whoa, whoa, wait, 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 you can't do it perfectly. And this is their words. You're going to continue to screw up, but you have the ability to obey. I don't know how I'm supposed to have the ability to obey, but I'm going to keep screwing up. So I, I, I don't know. It, it, it's so convoluted. It, it, it's crazy. And, but somehow the law is a means of grace. I, I, I don't even know how you even unpack all of this. It's a theological train wreck is what it is, but we're going we're gonna to jump in. It's just, I cannot stress to you, what is happening in many churches is the gospel that's being offered to you, listen to me, is not the gospel. It is law light. It's just the law masquerading as the gospel. You grab onto it thinking you're, get, you're, get, you're getting good news and you get slapped in the face with judgment shame, guilt, and condemnation because they just handed you the law. And people will deny that. But I'm telling you, it's true. They're claiming the biggest problem is antinomianism. 
But you listen to, just go across the internet grabbing sermon after sermon after sermon and you constantly hear, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. 15 ways to be better at this. 10 ways to be better at this. Do this, do that. It's all law, 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 law. Law has to be taught by all means. But it has to be taught in a proper understanding of it and then a proper understanding of the gospel. All right, I know I know a lot of review there, but yeah. All right, here we go. So let's jump in. Look, there's no easy way. When, when we're doing these reviews and they get broken up into sections, there's no easy way to ease back into it. I hate that. That's why my the further we go along in these reviews, my introductions get longer and longer and longer because I, st- I struggle with how do I ease us back into this? But I always describe it. We just walk up to the edge of the pool and we're just going to jump in. So we're going to go back to this episode of the Gospel Coalition podcast. I can't remember. They have a number of podcasts. I remember. I don't remember which podcast this is from. And uh, they're talking about law and grace and, uh, well, how the law is a means of grace. This is absolutely crazy. Here we go. I don't want to give you my thoughts. I want to give you Titus's thoughts. There you go. Or the thoughts that were addressed to Titus, I should say, um, where it says uh, grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness, that we would be a people zealous to do good works. So grace actually gives us the means to view rightly our relationship to the law and to benefit from it. Like the law becomes a means of grace in the Okay, this is the most insane thing I've ever heard. She's quoting, and I'll back this up. I'll back this up. In fact, I'll just go ahead and do it now because this is so hard to even hear because she makes this passage say something it doesn't actually say, and I'm dumbfounded by this, right? I'm just, I I don't even understand how this takes place. She's quoting, well, she doesn't really quote. She references Titus 2 because she says she's going to give us the words that was given to Titus, and then she paraphrases it, and then she adds to it. In fact, she just replaces it with her own words while claiming it's scripture. It is, it is, it is frightening what happens here. The actual text reads this way, Titus 2.11, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. What teaches us this? The grace of God. The grace of God that brings salvation teaches us that we that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. It is grace that teaches us we should not live this way. Why? Because grace saves us from the very sin and saves us from the condemnation of the law, saves us from the condemnation of this sin. And so out of gratitude for what grace has done for us, we should be motivated to now live. Grace teaches that. See, the law just says, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty. See your sin, see your sin. Exposed, exposed, exposed. Sinner, 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 sinner. Liar, murderer, adulterer, on it, glutton, slothful, greed, prideful. It just, it condemns, it condemns, it condemns, it condemns. Grace comes along and says, I, grace says, I will save you. Not because you deserve it, but because of grace. And then by faith, the perfect righteousness of Christ is accredited to our account. So we are saved not because of what change will happen, can happen, may happen. We're saved because of an imputed righteousness. And you can't judge imputed righteousness 
based off the presence of practical righteousness. So Grace does teach us. She somehow goes with somehow Grace teaches us and somehow she replaces Grace with the law. It is insane. Watch what happens here. So the text is about what Grace teaches us. She's going to take what Grace teaches us and basically accredit that to the law, that the grace here is the law. She's going to replace this text where it says grace, and she's going to basically make it the law. It is, a, it is I, 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 I am still baffled by what we heard last night. We're getting ready to hear it again. Listen carefully. That we would be a people zealous to do good works. So grace actually gives us the means to view rightly our relationship to the law and to benefit from it. Like the law becomes a means of grace in the life of the believer, and it trains us to renounce ungodliness. And so the law is a gift to us. Um, She took a text about grace, somehow used that to turn law into a means of grace, So that now law is doing the training. Law is doing the teaching. The text says grace is doing the teaching. She just says grace does the teaching. And what it teaches us is to change our view on the law. And now law does the training. Which is literally has nothing to do with what this text even says. And I think that's something that people have missed. They actually think that grace and law are in opposition to one another. No, I think that's exactly right. I mean, we forget that the word of God, which includes the law, is a means of grace. It's Mm -hmm. a means of encouraging. Mm -hmm. It's a means of enlightening. Mm -hmm. But all of that's possible for the believer with the spirit. Mm -hmm. And this is the thing that I think we often forget is that the non-Christian looks at the law and it's pure enemy, Mm -hmm. right? Maybe there's some external things it can do for you, but as a whole, it's going to just condemn you. But for the believer with the spirit regenerating your heart, you now can begin to obey it. It's, in other words, I feel like someone just needs to say it, real obedience is possible. Perfection yeah. Here we go. Here we go. So now you can do it. Hey, see now that you're saved and you see the law, you can keep it. Now, again, if you say that, that look fine if you want to believe that, but then don't water the law down. The law demands perfect, exact, entire, perpetual obedience. If you can do that, then demand that. But guess what they're getting ready to do? Right after saying you can do it, he's getting ready now to limit what you can and can't do. He says you have the ability to do it. And now he's going to limit the ability in the very next breath, right? So now, hey, hey, you can do it. You can do it. You now have the ability. But then he's going to immediately limit the ability and just literally in no time. Watch, I'm going to back this up. Watch what he's going to do. This is, this is bait and switch. Here's the bait. Hey, now that you're a Christian, so the good news for them is that now you have the ability to keep the law. Oh, that's that's such good news. And then immediately when you reach out for that supposed good news, it's going to be like, no, you can't do it perfectly. Well, if I can't do it perfectly, then that means the ability is limited. And number two, incomplete obedience to the law is complete disobedience. So you can't say I have the ability to keep the law in an incomplete way and call that obedience. The law demands perfection. It doesn't let you get by with partial obedience. That's not law keeping. That's law breaking. 
If you're guilty in one point of the law, you're guilty of the entire thing. So when we tell Christians, now that you're saved, you can keep the law, then you would say you have to keep it perfectly because any deviation is complete disobedience and you're guilty of the entire thing. Oh, this is such a game they're playing here. In other words, I feel like someone just needs to say it. Real obedience is possible. Perfection's not possible. Um, This sort of higher Christian life, that's not what we're talking about. But the idea that you can wholeheartedly pursue a life of obedience, it seems like we've sort of just tried to say that's impossible to stop stop talking about it. Well, because we keep screwing up and then we feel bad. Yes. You know, you're like, and and you're like, maybe I'm the worst at this. Yeah. And so then you're then you're like, can I find some buddies who are bad at this too so we can all feel better about this? And I'm I'm actually not trying to be funny. It is a horrible thing to know that you have missed the mark again as someone who's indwelt by the Spirit. So now, now, so once again, after saying that you have the ability to do it, after saying you have the ability, then they come back and say, but, 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 you're going to keep screwing up. You're going to keep screwing up. You just keep screwing up over and over and over. I mean, that's a horrible thing. You keep, well, wait a minute. Either I have the ability or I don't have the ability. You have to make a decision. You have it or you don't. If I do, then demand perfection. If I don't, then stop demanding perfection. It's, it, you can't, you can't have, you have the ability, you have the ability to keep the law, but you're going to keep failing. Right. Okay. Someone just said real obedience. How, what does that even mean? Exactly. What is to me, real obedience, real obedience means complete obedience to the law. Like that's the only thing it can mean. Real obedience would have to mean complete perfection. There's, it's not real obedience. Again, if I'm guilty on one point of the law, I'm guilty of the entire thing. Anyone can obey. Um, um, these, uh, anyone can obey in these subjective partial ways. I just don't understand how they are defining real obedience. Exactly. Anyone can obey in some subjective partial way. I mean, look, I mean, I haven't killed my neighbor. So see, I, I, I'm obeying. I'm, I'm obeying because I haven't murdered anyone. Look at me. Real obedience. I haven't murdered anyone. But see, that's the same thing the rich young ruler played, right? Isn't that the little game he played? Hey, what must I do to have eternal life? Well, keep the law. Okay, which law? Well, you know, love God, love your neighbor. Well, I, I've, I've done these things since I was a child. Oh, really? Have you? Have you really? You, you think you've obeyed the law. You think you've obeyed it. Go sell everything and give to the poor. He walks away. See, all these people who say real obedience is possible, real obedience in the most subjective way as you define it, God's uh, idea of real obedience would be complete, perfect, exact, entire obedience, perpetual obedience to the law. One deviation, you're guilty of the entire thing. You haven't kept it. You don't keep it. You lack the ability to keep it and stop with this nonsense. I'm telling you, they're not offering you the gospel. They're offering you law light. It's law masquerading as gospel. Their their good news is you can do it, but you can't do it perfectly. You're still going to screw up. What? (laughs) What is this? 
Nobody wants to feel that way. And I think that we do need to acknowledge that the path of sanctification is filled with failures. It is. Um, the path of sanctification is filled with failure. <laughs> hey, but you have the ability, you have the ability to keep the law. You have the, ob- uh, the ability to keep the law, but it's going to be a path filled with failure. What? Do you not hear yourself? You sound literally insane. Not saying they're insane. I'm saying they sound insane. Literally throwing out contradictory comments and not even realizing, well, wait a minute. I just told everyone they have the ability to keep the law. Now I'm turning around telling them, however, you're going to continue to screw up and the entire path of sanctification is going to be filled with failure. Well, wait, wait, what? How? How? But over the course of a lifetime, we should see increasing distance between the frequency of our besetting sins and a. So now the best we the best they can offer now is just we should see a a greater distance in the frequency in which we commit besetting sins. Well, wait a minute. You said I have the ability to obey. Why would I have? Why would there be any frequency? Why would there be any? It, 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 you would think that what it would be would be pretty simple. Hey, I committed this sin. Oh man, I don't know how I committed that sin. I know I have the ability not to do that. Okay, I'm sorry. I repent. I'm not going to do that ever again. And that would be the end of it. Right? Right? But it doesn't work that way. Shrinking distance in between the committing of our sins and our repenting of that sin. That's what we're wanting. We want to be quicker to repent and we want to be slower to repeat a sin that has been something that has followed us around for a long time. There are very few times, I think, in the Christian life that people would report that they stopped doing something and never did it again. Okay, so now, so now that what this is turning into, you have the ability to keep the law, but what they mean by that is you'll be quicker to repent and slower to repeat. <laughs> You're going to be quicker to repent and slower to repeat. You're still going to repeat. It'll just take you longer. So instead of Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, committing the same sin, it's going to be Monday, Wednesday, Monday to Friday. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. First of all, you're still sinning 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I can, I'll give you the same three I give you every single time. Love the Lord that God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. You never obey that. You fall short of that constantly. Love your neighbor as yourself. You constantly fall short of that. And be holy as God is holy. You have never for one second ever accomplished that any way, shape, or form practically. Now, all three of those you fulfill perfectly in Christ Jesus because of his imputed righteousness. Um, but we can trust. That's where we can trust the depth and the width and the length of the mercies and grace of God. Uh, we can trust that and lean on it. And if you think about it, like if you're a parent, well, even if you're not a parent, you've been a child. So stick with the illustration here. Um, a parent um, gives the child, here's the rules. Here are our house rules. Um, and those rules, the important thing about the law, too, that we don't talk about is that it's not just good for you, you and your personal relationship with Christ. The law is good for community. That's why we have it. It's so we can live in communion with God and in communion with others. And so as a parent, when I give law to my children and I say, this is the way we can all live in harmony with one another in this home, I don't like post the rules on the refrigerator and assume that all will be well. 
I know straight up because a child's resolve is always exceptionally high when it comes to violating the rules on the fridge that we're going to have over and over and over again an opportunity to reset the expectation. There will be a consequence if there's failure, but there will also be grace to get up and try again. I'm an evil earthly parent, but my heavenly parent knows how to do this perfectly. He knows how to deal with me gently and perfectly as he draws me ever increasingly into the very good law that shows me how to love him and love others so that we can function as the community. The law doesn't show me how to love. The law shows me my inability to love. The law shows my failure to love. The law shows me that I don't do it. She's turning, she's trying to speak of the law as if it's gospel. The gospel is where we find mercy. The gospel is where we find grace. The the gospel is where we find the correct motivation. We're not, law doesn't motivate, it just condemns. If you try to be motivated by law, you're going to find yourself broken, disillusioned, bitter, frustrated, and sick of Christianity. It is the gospel. It is the mercy of God that should be the thing that motivates me, that makes me like long to do that which pleases him because he has saved me from my failure and from my guilt and from my damnation and from my condemnation. Unity of God. Now, one word you use there is try. Mm -hmm. So this raises the question, and of course, we better talk about it. It's in the title (laughs) of our whole session, right? Um, (laughs) Is effort... Or is grace opposed hard work? So we're talking about striving towards obedience. Think about the conglomeration of words there. Strive, try, dare I say it, work towards obedience. Some will say, now, if you do that, you're a legalist. You're you're just following works righteousness. You just got to just, it's not about effort. It's about just going back to your justification over and over again. Uh And that's what makes you more holy. Mm -hmm. Well, and... And what often will be said at this point in the conversation is, it is finished. Like, the Sabbath rest of our souls has been secured for us in Christ. So why are we talking about striving and laboring? And I would just say, well, we talk about it because the New Testament talks about it. It says to run the race. It says to fight. What what I'm perplexed about is you're telling me I have the ability and now you got to, now I've got to strive. I got to strive. Why? If I have the abil- ability, what am I striving to do? I, I can do it. I have the ability. I have supernatural ability given to me by God. But I, but I got to strive. So, so he only gives me a little bit of ability because you've already limited the ability that I can't do it perfectly. Now I've got to strive. Now I've got to work. I, I, okay. Well, wait a minute. At what point does the ability kick in? You've already limited it on one end. Perfection is impossible. All right. So I'm already limiting it. Now, now I got to strive and I got to struggle. So is it just the ability to strive and struggle or is it the ability to actually do? And even if you say it's the ability to do, you've already limited on how much it can do.
fight the fight. It says to, um, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Um, and yes, we have been secured the Sabbath soul rest of our justification. When Christ speaks, it is finished on the cross. But if you've paid attention to the flow of the biblical narrative, that's not the last time it is finished is spoken. It comes up again in Revelation when we see the new Jerusalem descending and from the throne is spoken, it is done. Why? Because that is the moment at which sanctification is finished and glorification begins. And so we haven't even actually talked about glorification as the third part of that, um, that salvation definition. But Because you haven't even explained sanctification yet. You've explained sanctification as I now have the supernatural ability to obey. I have the supernatural ability to obey the law. However, I can't do it perfectly, but I strive. But then I'll be glorified. So sanctification is the supernatural ability to do something imperfectly, but that's sufficient to say that I can keep the law. So insufficient obedience or imperfect obedience is sufficient for me to say that that's obedience to the law. So one, that's a weird view that law somehow is a means of grace, but I'm going to keep screwing up. I, 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 yeah, I don't think you need to worry about glorification. I don't even think you need to worry about justification. I think what you need to worry about is just relearning everything because you're clearly completely, utterly baffled and confused by all of this because you're not making any sense. Anyone taking anything this person is saying to its logical conclusion is going to be like, well, wait a minute, I don't understand. I can do it, but I can't do it perfectly. Wait, in perfect obedience is real obedience. <laughs> okay. So if we look at the whole expanse of the scriptures, those of us who are on the other side of justification, awaiting our glorification, we labor and we strive during this life um, to be conformed to the image of the son. That's our whole charge. And, and how do we do that? We, he obeyed the law perfectly. So we strive to do as he did, to walk as he walked. Yeah, the idea that he obeyed the law perfectly See, this, so according to her, he obeyed the law perfectly as an example for us to do as he did. But I can't do as he did. You've already told me that I can't do it. Maybe he didn't keep the law perfectly as an example to me. He kept the law perfectly for me, knowing that I could never do it. And out of my gratitude... Out of my gratitude for him doing that for me, then I seek to try to walk in a way that is pleasing to him, no matter how perfect it may be. You, she just literally like, he kept the law perfectly, and now we're to walk as he walked. Perfectly? You've already told me that's impossible. So their, their complaint is that there are people out there saying it's impossible to obey the law. And their, their, their whole argument is that those people are wrong. But they themselves have acknowledged that that is 100% true. Can you keep the law perfectly? They say no. I say no. <laughs> but you want to say that we should not say that. But you've said it. The very argument they're arguing against, they have proven 
literally, this is a podcast to argue against what I have claimed, and they've just proven my point. Can you keep the law perfectly? No. Therefore, you don't have the ability to do so. Therefore, you've not been given the divine ability to do so. Therefore, you can't tell people that they can have uh, the ability to do so. And if you just try to water it down to real obedience, real obedience to the law is perfect obedience. So they've literally acknowledged we can't do it. But they think they're making some grand apologetic argument against those of us who say, you can't do it. You can't do it. And they're like, no, 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 no. You can't say that. We can. We just can't do it perfectly. The effort is out of sync with Mm -hmm. the gospel, I think, is confusing justification and Mm -hmm. sanctification. Mm -hmm. Right? Justification is monergistic. We contribute... Mm -hmm nothing to our justification. It's utterly uh, all the work of God. But sanctification includes our involvement Mm -hmm. in that. Um, And there's a sense in which effort, obviously grace-fueled effort, faith-fueled effort, but effort nonetheless is entirely fitting for the Christian life. In fact, I think of 2 Peter 1 where it says, make every effort to add these different qualities Mm -hmm. to your character. Mm -hmm. So there's Okay, so they go with a synergistic sanctification, all right? I know there's debate within theological circles, whether it's synergistic or monergistic. Synergistic is easier to explain. Now, so here's the issue. In sanctification, I participate in striving to live a life that's pleasing to God, to live a life in obedience. However, Here's what they look, even though they claim this is not what they're saying, they've already proven this. We cannot keep the law, period. As a believer, I cannot keep the law. As a believer, I cannot obey in any meaningful way if we understand obedience to be perfect, exact, entire, perpetual, internal, and external. I'll give you the, th- I'm, you know what I'm going to say. I'm going to give you the three. I, I keep mentioning them over and over. And all of this series, 42, 43 plus hours now, I, I, I've, I've tried to explain this. I can just give everyone three scriptures, right? Three commands in scripture. Love the Lord thy God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. No one accomplishes that. No one fulfills that. Everyone is in perpetual disobedience to that. Love your neighbor as yourself. We what even when we supposedly show love to our neighbor as ourselves, it's never perfect. It's never entire. It's never exact. In many cases, we have wrong motivations and wrong uh, thoughts and thinking inside of us. And when it comes to the third, be ye holy as God is holy. No one has pulled that off. No one saved or unsaved. No one obeys these commands. We cannot do it. We will not do it. It is impossible. We strive, we want, we desire, we hope, we pray, but it will not happen because we have a depraved nature. The depraved nature is not removed. I know there are those out there who believe in the eradication of the old nature. I'm sorry, it's not. It's there. So they're making an argument, but see, they've already argued we can't be perfect. So if you can't be perfect, on one hand, they want to argue. This is so maddening to try to even follow their thinking. Their thinking is this. Hey guys, stop telling people they can't keep the law. 
Because the good news is in salvation, you've been given now the supernatural ability to obey God. You've been given now the supernatural ability to say no to sin. You've been given the supernatural ability to obey the law. Stop telling people they can't. Then you give it a little bit longer and then they say, however, and then their words, we keep screwing up. We will keep screwing up because we can't be perfect. So whatever ability they claim we have, they just limited the ability. Then they claim real obedience is possible, but they don't really define that what real obedience is. They make it very subjective because what does the law demand? The law demands perfect, exact, entire, perpetual obedience. They claim that you can claim for yourself that you're obeying the law in some way, even though it's an incomplete obedience, even though it's not exact, even though it's not a tie. They, so they water down the requirements of the law so that you can claim that you can do it. However, even their watered down version, they say you can't do it perfectly. So I don't know what their issue is. Hey, Christians, stop telling people they can't keep the law. And then they literally turn around and say, you can't do it perfectly. But, 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 but you really can kind of. And, and now, and so I, I, I it's just, okay, we, we've got to finish this. Clearly nothing out of sync with striving mm-hmm. in the Christian life. I think there's this sense though, that if you do that somehow you're just on the verge of becoming a legalist. And this is where, you know, if you, if you're working hard at your spiritual disciplines, you're working hard to read the Bible every day, or you're working hard to memorize scripture, then you're looked at suspiciously. I wonder, <laughs> why, why is that? How'd that happen? What are you talking about? They, they, they've created some weird straw man that I, it doesn't exist. You're telling me that, there's, that, that if you look at the majority of the evangelical world, they're like, hey, you're striving and you're doing the spiritual disciplines? You're weird. No, every sermon you listen to is... Do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. It's constant. It's always to do, giving you 900 things to do. Those of us who critique that form of Christianity, clearly because we believe it has obliterated a proper distinction between law and gospel is this, by all means, do your spiritual disciplines, read your Bible, study your Bible. I mean, this podcast, who clearly they would argue that we were doing everything wrong. What do we promote? We have an entire series called Bible Study Exercise. What do we attempt to do? To get people off the couch to engage in meaningful, serious, systematic Bible study. I give you homework. We have curriculum. We, we do everything. And, 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 we, and we, co- we do that week after 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 week. We challenge people to study their Bible. We challenge people to study church history. We challenge people to study theology. We want them to learn, to study, and we want people to pursue righteousness and godliness. Here's the issue, though. Here's the difference that they don't seem to understand. When people point to those actions, you're doing your daily quiet time or you're doing eight, whatever the list is, you do these 14 things. See, this proves you're saved. That's where we have a problem. Because I'm saved by an imputed righteousness, not a practical righteousness. Practical righteousness cannot prove imputed righteousness because imputed righteousness is simply accredited to me and I'm declared to be perfect and righteous because of what Christ did. 
in my life, I'm still going to sin. I'm still a sinner and I still possess, I do not possess the ability, the ability to keep the law perfectly exact, entirely and perpetual. So in my life, it's going to be sin, 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 sin. And I can't look to that or try to somehow claim this proves that I am saved because that destroys the idea of being saved by an imputed righteousness and creates the idea that I'm saved by an infused righteousness, which is, ladies and gentlemen, Roman Catholicism. (laughs) They're all over the place. Hey, hey, don't tell people you can't keep the law. You can do it. Well, you can't do it perfectly. However, your imperfect obedience is sufficient to say that you're obeying the law, which is a destruction of the law. And then, but they're for them, their, their good news that they're selling is not the imputed righteousness of Christ. It's you can keep the law. Well, I mean, you really can't keep the law, but we're going to tell everyone they can. And we're going to condemn anyone who says that you can't. So if I, if I say, well, here's all the 50 things I did wrong this week, you're patted on the back almost like, well, see, you're really a Christian. Yeah. But if you strive towards holiness and push towards those things. That's like, well, I don't know about you. I think you're on the border. How do we get, how do, what's going on there? I just don't understand that. Well, you know, I think, I think each of us in our, whatever our um, particular corner of the church is, are dealing with where emphasis has fallen on the wrong syllable. So some of you, actually, if you came to this, you, you are probably coming from somewhere where you maybe have picked up on an emphasis that was leaning too far one direction or another. And I think that the reason that Luther felt the way that he did about James is because of where the emphasis had been during his lifetime. And, um, and each of us can only speak to the place that the Lord has placed us and address the issues that we see before us there. And so I think that at least where I am or have been in the Bible belt for my whole entire adult life, you know, where you got pins for going to Sunday school. And if you're a Southern Baptist, you wrote the date you were saved in the front of your Bible, you know, like I have been a career Southern Baptist. I don't know when I was saved. Like, you're like a second-class citizen. Like, you don't tell people that. You're out if you tell people that. Jen, I'm, I'm not sure you're saved. Well, I, seriously. So, uh, I just, and I'm like, should I just, like, write a fake date in there? Like, what do you just, don't show anybody the front of my Bible? Um, so, uh, you, so, where was I? I was confessing to you that I've never been saved. Um, but a lot of us, our experience of church was just be good. And so it's understandable where the message has come from. And any time a system corrects, it doesn't do so neatly. You shout something that has someone's been silent on for a long time. But as the pendulum swings, you don't want it to swing completely the other direction. We all want to, you know, we want to end up here where you go, you know what's important? Law and grace working together in the life of the believer. Law and grace. And you've obliterated the distinction by turning the gospel into law, and you literally claim that law is a means of grace, which I don't understand what has happened here. Okay. Yeah, it makes me think different generations Mm -hmm. and different churches struggle with different emphases. Yeah. You know, there's a thought, sorry, baby boomers out there, if you're listening or in the audience, uh, maybe online, is that some people will say, and I'm not saying that this is true, but some people will say that, that generation very much struggled to get grace and was very much tends towards uh, moralism mode of thinking. So if that's the problem, well, now you got to heap on second use of the law all the time. 
But we also know that there's other generations and other constituencies and other places in the world where that's not the struggle. Maybe the struggle is antinomianism, not legalism. Um, so I always have a trick question for my students. I always have a little pop quiz question I put in my notes. Does, does the, what does the church need more today, second use of the law or third use of the law? And the answer, of course, is yes, right? <laughs> both. Every person is both a closet legalist and a closet antinomian at the same time. And we often just hop back and forth between the two in our lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure, some people may have a tendency to one or the other, but we kind of are both, and churches are both, and we really need that balance in the Christian life, which is why I think conversations like this are so useful. Okay, I'll play along. Maybe there is a little bit of antinomian and legalist in all of us. I, I, will, I will completely say, all right, I'll go along with you. But what you have done is given me a convoluted mess that makes absolutely no sense. On one hand, you have condemned anyone who says, hey, as a believer, you cannot keep the law. You've said that that's wrong. Then you turn around and say that you can keep it. Then you turn around and say you can't keep it perfectly. Therefore, claiming imperfect obedience to the law is actual obedience to the law, which is nonsense and ludicrous. So you've, you've given me what? You, can, you can't keep the law perfectly, but I'm not allowed to say that because that somehow makes me an antinomian. What? And so what's your solution? I, I, don't, I don't really know. I don't even know what. And, and then you've told me that the law is a means of grace. Uh, you, you've redefined law. You, I don't even know what your understanding of the gospel is, even though you gave lip service to a right understanding that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone, because of an imputed righteousness alone. Amen. But then you've argued almost against, well, wait a minute, you're saved that way. But, 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 but remember now that you're saved, the good news is you can keep the law. And then you turn around and say, but you can't keep it perfectly. You're going to continue to screw up. But, 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 but real obedience is possible, but you don't define what real obedience is because you've already claimed that I can keep the law and I can have real obedience to the law, but I can't do it perfectly. Yeah, just, someone just said, whatever they're really fighting against seems made up. I, I maybe uh, it says, but I could have missed it. I don't know. I haven't had one Christian say, yeah, I sinned last night and I, and, and I'm a real Christian. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I don't know what they're fighting against. Put it this way. They've yet to give me in this book, in this sermon, at this conference, this idea was put forth. They just claim that there's this antinomian revolt going on out there. It's full-blown antinomianism. It's taking over the church. The church is about to be turned. Everyone's going to get branded with an A and it won't stand for adulterer. It's going to stand for antinomian. They, they think that's the greatest threat to the church. But they've yet give one example. Now, one example. I mean, typically, if you say you go to a conference that's against the charismatic theology, Man, you're going to be naming names. You're going to name conferences. You're going to name speakers. You're going to name churches. You're going to name books. You're going to name, you're going to go through the history of it. You're going to, I mean, you're just going to, if you're going against Roman Catholicism, you're going to be named, you're going to be reading from the Council of Trent or Vatican I or Vatican II and this Pope and this uh, papal encyclical or this papal bull. You're going to be giving names. If, you, if you're going after Mormonism, you're going to be, get, but here it's like, look guys, we've got an antinomian revolt breaking out. We got to do something about it. And the way we're going to fight antinomianism is tell everyone, you can keep the law. 
but you actually can't. See? Stop being an antinomian. <laughs> what? Here's, here's one other category of scripture that's in my head, Jen, and you can reflect on this with me too. One thing I think might help is to recover a category of scripture we don't talk about, and that is the category in scripture of the righteous person. Yes. So most of us know that throughout the Bible, various people are called righteous. You know, Noah's called a righteous man. You know, even Mary is called righteous. Um, other people are called righteous individuals, persons, etc. Any thoughts on how that might help us here in this conversation? Well, I think, yeah, because we, you know, you read like Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. And we're like, wait, we're crediting people with righteousness? Because that doesn't sound like, you know, don't we just get that? And um, I do think there's a lot of confusion about. What do you mean? He believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's called imputed righteousness by faith. What, do you, what does she not understand by, about that? It's called imputed righteousness. Most of those people in the Bible who are declared to be righteous clearly prove their unrighteousness in their actions. <laughs> yeah, aren't they righteous by faith? Exactly. Someone else just said it in the comments. Yeah, that's the whole... What does she not understand? She's acting like it's a crazy concept. Wait, we're saying they're credited by, by righteousness? That doesn't sound right. What do you mean it doesn't sound right? It's the whole basis of the evangelical. It's the whole basis of the Reformation. How am I declared righteous? By faith alone, by an alien righteousness accredited to me. So you're, you're going to fight against antinomianism by denying that we are declared righteous by faith? Okay, I don't know where this is going. I'm getting really, 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 really worried. I'm going to back this up. I'm getting really worried now. Here we go. Believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. And we're like, wait, we're crediting people with righteousness? Because that doesn't sound like, you know, don't we just get that? And um, I do think there's a lot of confusion about how righteousness... What does she mean, don't we just get that? Like... Well, I don't understand. What is she talking about? Like, I don't, I don't even understand what that means. This functions in the life of the believer. And, and a lot of the failureism conversation is around the idea that, no, no, no. Hey, we have the righteousness of Christ. So we're good. And that's a true statement. It's actually a precious statement to us that we are, through Christ, positionally righteous before God, that when he looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ, which was secured for us through his perfect obedience, death, burial, resurrection. Okay. All right. Good. Okay. So now, okay. I don't know what that what statement she was making there. It made it, it was all confusing, all right, but now she's articulating a correct reformation understanding of that we are saved by an imputed righteousness and that we are declared righteous positionally. Absolutely true and ascension, the whole ball of wax, but it follows from practical, from positional right. But here comes the but, which usually cancels everything that you just said, but righteousness, that we would live a life of practical righteousness. And that's the call in being um, not just called righteous or credited as righteous, but being a person who exhibits righteousness in our behavior. Um, 
the, I said earlier that when scripture speaks of those who are the enemies of God, it categorizes them as the lawless man. And so it follows that Christians would not desire to be lawless, but be lawful, that we would be filled with law uh, because the law is activated in us through the spirit and by grace in a way that is absolutely transformational. What would you say? Yeah, I mean, I I think I'm always shocked to hear people's response to passages of scripture that call people righteous. It's almost like they think that shouldn't be in there. Like, like, well, that doesn't fit with the gospel. I mean, I mean, who are these people who say they're shocked by that? Who, who are these people? I give me the name, give me the sermon, give me the book. No, we read that and go, he's called righteous. He's declared to be righteous. You know why he's declared to be righteous? Because he's righteous positionally because of God's grace, because of an imputed righteousness. Doesn't Romans three say no one is righteous, not even one. Um, I, I think of that uh, cartoon I saw on the internet the other day about the, the Calvinist dog. The, 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 the dog who's owned by a Calvinist owner says, you know, you can't call me good boy because there's no good dogs out there, you know. Um, Calvinists are super and, fun, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, I think I was on the Battle on B or something. I can't remember where I saw that. But, you know, we have this idea that if you call someone righteous, that you're... Calvinists are funny, aren't they? Yeah, we are. We're so funny. We're just so funny because we did. What does that even Calvinists are funny, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. We're so funny. Yeah. And, and, but you, you, you've got it all together and this convoluted mess of, yeah. Now I'm just getting frustrated. You're basically breaking some rule. Mm-hmm. Now, certainly if you called someone righteous and meant that your law-keeping justified you before God, well, that would be inappropriate. But the Bible is very clear that some people have, have a trajectory or a characteristic of righteousness in them where God can say, that is a righteous man or that is a righteous woman. And it doesn't just mean the imputed righteousness of Christ, which we all obviously value and love. It can mean that there's positive holiness in their life in such a way that God can say, this is a righteous person. Not perfect, but a trajectory All right, so now I can be declared righteous by God based off the trajectory of my life. So I can be declared righteous. So imperfect righteousness, imperfect righteousness can be considered righteousness by God based off the trajectory of my life. (laughs) That's, oh, this is, oh boy. Oh man, this is insanity stuff. This is insane stuff. Hey, hey, you're righteous, even though you're not righteous. Because oh, oh, any now this, this is they're they're talking about being declared righteous practically. So just think about this. I so God can look at someone and say they're righteous, even though they're not perfect, even though they're sinning, even though they're sin in their life. He can still say they're righteous, and it's based off trajectory, not based off the imputed righteousness of Christ. So now righteousness can be defined as imperfection, sinning. All you need is the right trajectory. A characteristic that marks them. And I wonder if we need to recover that a little bit. Um, Just a reminder that there's nothing inappropriate about that. 
Well, and the way that I've seen it in women's circles, and I've written on this some, is that if, if I were to ask women, I'll say, you know, hey, can you tell me, if you think about what is a woman who is just really, you know, just fully embracing her faith, like how would you characterize her? And I joke that on Instagram, this woman is standing in a soft focus field of flowers. She has her back to us and both of her arms are outflung and she's staring up at the sky like this. And we would say that she's a woman who just loves Jesus with all of her heart or she just is sold out for him and she just, you know, adores him. Um, and yet the verse with which women are, are smacked the most frequently in the Bible, charm is deceitful and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who adores the Lord is to be praised. No, it says a woman who fears the Lord. And, you know, you look at those repeated mentions of the fear of the Lord uh, in the Old Testament. And then guess what? In the New Testament as well. And we have to ask ourselves, where is our category for that? Who is the God-fearer? And of course, we understand that not to be the kind of fear um, that was felt at the foot of Mount Sinai, but is the kind of fear that is felt at the foot of Mount Zion. It's that we would offer right reverence and awe to him. But that right reverence and awe that we offer to him is not simply a feeling. It is an expression that is formed in our spiritual act of worship, which is obedience. So we've kind of built so you fear God when you obey him. So I'm assuming imperfect obedience equals perfect fear. For our way up to something that's been looming in the background here, and, and now we kind of come to it, and that is the way this affects preaching. So we Or teaching. Yes, teaching. Thank you. Uh, we hear a lot of conversation today about Christ-centered preaching or teaching, how when you teach the Bible that you need to make sure that Christ is at the center of it. And of course, I know you and I would agree with that. But one thing I've noticed is that some people have a certain understanding of that that's pretty limited, and what they mean by it is pretty narrow. And I think it could stand to be expanded. So I'll give you what I think is out there, and you can give me your thoughts. So then I'm sure the those listening probably have seen this. Some people, when they say you should have Christ-centered teaching or preaching, what that means in their mind is that every sermon basically presents you with, you can't keep the law, you're a sinner, um, and you just need to give up on your law-keeping attempts and turn to Christ for forgiveness. In other words, to put it differently, to preach Christ means to preach justification. Mm -hmm. Now, I've got to say that I think justification is such a wonderful doctrine that, wow, we want to make sure that we preach it. Um, and certainly that's one way of preaching Christ, but I would wonder if that's the only way of preaching Christ. Does every sermon have to be about justification to count as a Christ-centered sermon? Well, and you just finished a commentary on Hebrews, so you know that Jesus is the true and bitter true and better jujitsu everybody does on their messages now. It's like, oh, and by the way, everybody, Jesus is the true and better fill in the blank. Peace be with you. And then we sing the doxology and you leave. Well, Baptists, we're trying to sing the doxology, but we feel like it's a new thing and we're going to see if it sticks. So the problem there is, is that the Bible does not simply say to us, Jesus is the true and better, peace be with you. It says, as Jesus himself said, when he tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, go and do likewise. And so go and do likewise. Law. Okay. Okay, yes. Uh, someone just said, no, they don't. No, 
They don't say, give up on your law-keeping attempts, do they? He threw that in, but who actually says that part? Right, no one, like, show me the sermon where someone's like, hey, don't even worry about it. Just don't, just do whatever you want. Don't even worry about it. No, the point is, yes, strive. Yes, fight against it, but you're going to fail. You're not ever going to do it perfectly. Your only hope is the imputed righteousness of Christ. The Christian life is the impossible task of living out practically what is true positionally. No one says don't try. No one says don't to do that. It's like as soon as you present the gospel to somebody like, oh, that's antinomian. You're telling me I can do anything I want. No, you're hearing that. Nobody is saying that. But what have you said? You have told me, you can keep the law. Then you've told me I can't keep the law, but then you told me my incomplete obedience is somehow obedience. And then you've told me that I can be righteous apart from the imputed righteousness based off practical righteousness that God will declare me righteous even though I've got sin in my life because of the trans, trans the transject, the, what is, what, what's the word? The, I don't remember the word he used. The, the direction of my life, the trajectory of my life, that's the word he used, based off the trajectory, now I'm righteous. You've given me this convoluted mess that is, well, I can do it, but I can't do it. I can't do it perfectly, but I can still do, I can still call myself obedient and I can still call myself righteous because of the trajectory of my life, even though there is sin in my life. But you want to put the focus on that somehow there's other people out there saying, hey, hey, don't, uh, don't keep the law. Don't do anything. Just, just do whatever you want. No, nobody is saying that. We're saying that the reality is we're going to fall short of it. Just as the pattern in the New Testament epistles is the indicative, this is who you are, which moves to the imperative, oh, and this is who he is, and then moves to the imperative of this then is how you should live. Good teaching and preaching would do the same thing. We don't simply leave people with, behold, Jesus. We give them, look now at yourself. Know that there's grace for you, but where are you needing to step forward in obedience to the commands of God that you might worship him by being more like him? You know, one, one way I like to say it is when you think about preaching Christ or teaching Christ, you can teach him in all his offices. So we, we know that theologically speaking, Christ has three offices, prophet, priest. And let me help with all of this nonsense about, so how do you preach? Here's what you do, okay? It's, it's really not complicated. What's the text you're preaching? Preach it. There you go. You don't need to place some fraud, just some arbitrary template upon it. Well, well, you have to preach law. You have to preach grace. No, preach the text. Figure out what the text says. If it's law, preach law. If it's grace, it's grace. Preach grace. You don't need to place some arbitrary template upon the text. Preach what's there. I know that's complicated, but it's really not. What does the text say? We're going to figure this out tonight. Here's what we're going to do tonight. We're in this passage of scripture. We're going to figure this out. Priest and king. And when you think about it, it's his priestly role that he died for our sins that we tend to think about the most mm -hmm. when, we, when we teach Christ. But I'm thinking, well, why can't we also teach or preach Christ in his prophetic role that he gives us instruction or his kingly role that he calls us to follow him and be loyal to him as king? In other words, 
it could you could preach Christ in multiple offices, not just his priestly office. And so when you think about that. No, you preach what the text says. If the text presents Jesus in his quote unquote prophetic role, or if it presents Jesus in quote unquote his kingly role, then you do that. If it's not there, you don't preach it. You preach what's in the text. It's, oh, why? Everybody always wants to uh, play some artificial template and say, here's how you're supposed to preach. Open the Bible. Here's the text. Tonight, we're going to try to figure this out. We're going to look at every difficulty. We're going to look at every question that arises, and we're going to work, and we're going to struggle, and we're going to try to figure this out to the best of our ability. But as soon as you do, you have people like, that's not preaching. That's not really a sermon. Because sermons have been keep, keeping people away from the text for around about 2,000 years. That way, and here's where we're coming to it, there is a place, I think, to preach a sermon on how to live and it not be moralism. Um, there is- yeah, that's all sermons are. <laughs> Every sermon you listen to, how to live, 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 how to live. That's all it ever is. And if you don't do this, you don't do this, you're probably not saved. Do this, do this. How do you prove you're saved? Do this, do this. That's all it is today. I mean, just listen to sermons randomly. You constantly hear what you're supposed to be doing and how you're supposed to be living. There is a place where you can teach a Bible study on what you should do. People say, we can't have do messages because that's anti-Christian. I'm like, well, have you read the Sermon on the Mount? That's one big, long do message. That's one big law message. (laughs) So yeah, you can preach what you're supposed to do. You can. And then let everyone know, hey, this is what we're called to do. We're going to fall short. So when you get... Your, your only hope, though, is in the imputed righteousness of Christ. I got no problem telling people what they're supposed to do, but you got to be realistic and the reality that no one's going to come close to doing it, or you just lead people to total despair, or they have to just pretend to be more righteous than they actually are, which creates a pharisaical attitude. What if we told Jesus he didn't know how to do Christ-centered preaching? I don't know what he would, what we would say uh, to that. <laughs> no, the Sermon on the Mount is effectively how to live, but it's not. The Sermon on the Mount is an exposition of the law. Oh my goodness gracious. He is showing them that to obey the law requires more than external obedience. It requires internal obedience. Therefore, by the end of the Sermon on the Mount, everyone is condemned. Unchristian when set within the larger context of the doctrines of grace that the Bible lays out. Frankly, it ends on a super downer of a low note. If you've paid it to, I'm like, I don't think Jesus took a good hermeneutics class because yes. he didn't sing a hymn at the end. I've got a few him, books he needs to read on how to yeah. set up a sermon structure. So, <laughs> But I digress. I mean, the same thing could be said of James. How, how are you going to mm-hmm. preach the book of James or mm-hmm. teach the book of James if you have a sort of one-size-fits-all mm-hmm. category for what it means to have Christ at the center of your message? If you decide to focus on justification alone, you're going to grow increasingly silent on bigger and bigger stretches of the scriptures by necessity. Stop. Give me an example where people grow increasingly silent on other books of the Bible. You're just making, I think it's almost like making, they've made up some controversy. Necessity. Yes, and, and one other thing that will happen is every message will start sounding the same. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't know if you've picked up on this, but in situations where you have a model of 
of teaching that's so tight around that. No matter what the text says, somehow it's always about justification. And justification is wonderful, don't get me wrong, but not every text is about justification, right? I mean, in one sense, when you hyper-impress that model onto a text, you're actually not letting the text dictate the sermon. You're letting... When you superimpose or impress or press upon any text, any concept, any structure, any template, you're keeping people from the text. That's why I hate sermons. Stop preaching sermons and teach the text. Sermons have a structure that people impose upon the text. In a model of teaching dictate the sermon, and you just are really wanting to say what you want to say, as wonderful as that message might be, letting the text speak allows us to preach Christ or teach Christ more broadly and more full-orbed. Well, and you know, my, my sphere of influence is I, I lead the women's Bible study at my church, and um, we see women come to faith in the course of an Old Testament study on First Samuel. You know, like, or, I mean, in the weirdest places, someone will profess faith. And I'm always like, Lord, what was it? Like, tell me what it was so we can do that again. You know, but again, because what do we want? We want a formula. We do want a formula. But the word is living and active, all of it. And so it probably shouldn't surprise us when someone hears the good news in a place where we feel like justification wasn't clearly articulated. It means the spirit is drawing together for them the pictures of the bigger story. And I do think it's so important for us in an instant gratification culture, not to preach instant gratification sermons or teach instant gratification lessons that give people the sense of tying a neat bow on an idea that might stretch across a large section of scripture, uh, but making them live in that tension that is built into the story so that the spirit resolves the tension for them at just the right time. Now, as we sort of draw this to a close, Jen, you know, we've been talking a lot about the law and you have a new book out on the law. Tell us about that. Um, well, you know, pandering to the female book market, I wrote a book on the 10 commandments. Um, Yeah, I I wrote a book on the Ten Commandments because I had been spending a lot of time in Genesis and Exodus, um, but then Exodus specifically over the last several years. And in the course of putting together a study of the entire book of Exodus, just and having done the study on the Sermon on the Mount, just putting together all of these pieces of this more expansive obedience, and was realizing with increasing clarity why um, Psalm 1 says... On it, he meditates day and night because we read the Ten Commandments in particular and they're pithy and short. Well, most of them are. And we think, oh, good, great. I will not kill anyone today. Check, right? Uh, and, And that's why we need the meditation piece on them because if you give it more thought, if you really examine yourself and ask the Spirit to show you how you might in fact be a murderer in spirit, even if you've not actually wielded a knife against someone, there is good work to be done in our lives by subject. Yeah, you're going to find out you're a murderer. <laughs> what? That's the whole point. You will be a murderer in some way, shape or form because you can't keep the law ourselves to the mirror of that particular portion of God's moral law, which is, you know, the ceremonial law, yes, fulfilled in Christ, the moral law, because it's a reflection of the unchanging character of God. I don't even want to say binding on us. I want to say a joyful delight for us because (laughs) the law is a joyful delight. The moral law was, was 
completed in Christ too. You do realize it, right? That Christ kept the moral law for us. You, you do realize. You, you can't bring yourself to say that. Hey, the ceremonial law, Christ took care of. He took care of the moral law as well. He took, he fulfilled it perfectly on my behalf. Now, yes, it's still what I should pursue and try to live by, but it has been fulfilled. It cannot condemn me it, it, because Christ took care of it perfectly for me. That's the way that it's spoken of in, in 1 John. He says, this is love for God, that we obey his commands. And then he, my favorite part is next. He says, and his commands are not burdensome. Now, are they difficult? Yes. But that's not. They are impossible. That's why we need Christ. Burdensome. Burdensome is a weight that crushes us. Difficult is an effort that is worth it. The law crushes us. Expending because it yields much fruit. Well, that's a a great place to stop. Um, Check out Jen's book. I know it's in uh, the book stalls. It's a wonderful uh, book and just a great walk through the Ten Commandments. Let me thank the Good Book Company again for sponsoring this. And Jen, this was fun. It was super fun. How about we not wait a whole decade next time to have yeah, a conversation? Yeah, that would be great. Well, good. How about you never, ever, ever, ever do it again? Wow. I, I don't even know what to say. I don't, what did you learn from that? You can keep the law, but you can't keep it perfectly. But your imperfect obedience to the law can be considered obedience to it, even though it's incomplete. And you can be declared righteous, even though you're a sinner, not because of an imputed righteousness, but because of the trajectory of one's life. And that the law, the moral law, she didn't say is fulfilled by Christ. She didn't even hint at that being fulfilled by Christ. It's a beautiful, wonderful thing that does not crush us and does not destroy us. Because we can keep it, even though we keep it imperfectly. (laughs) And somehow, everyone else is wrong. There you go. I'll stop there. You can email me. News, IF. I don't, I don't even, I literally don't know what else to say. No, I, I know you think I'm joking, but I literally am just going to end because I don't know what else to say. News, IF at yahoo.com. News, IF at yahoo.com. That's news, IF at yahoo.com. News, IF at yahoo.com. This was supposed to be 30 minutes because my food has been waiting for me now for 45 minutes, so it's going to be cold and gross. But I, once we got this far in, I couldn't stop, so we had to stop. So we, we, I couldn't stop until we got to the end. So now I'm going to stop because I literally am frustrated, and I don't know what I just heard because I literally, if I wrote that down, I don't know what the uh, – what, what is – her answer, their, I mean, what is their answer to antinomian? Antinomianism is the greatest threat, and their answer to antinomianism is don't tell people you can't keep the law. You can keep the law, but the reality is you can't keep the law perfectly, but in your imperfection, you somehow can call that obedience. Even though you don't obey the law perfectly, your disobedience is considered obedience because you do it partially, but that's very subjective. They don't explain. You're righteous, even though there's sin in your life, simply because of the trajectory of your life. But everyone's an antinomian, which are bad. Oh, and Calvinists are funny. And oh, I wrote a book on the Ten Commandments. There you go.
And I, oh, and law is a means of grace. I'm trying to think of the high points there. I, I don't even know. All right, email me, newsif at yahoo.com. We'll be back on the air in about an hour and a half to two hours. God bless.